Well, good morning. Let's pray, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, we ask this morning as we see your hand at work in the Exodus and the life of Israel, we ask please that you would show us your character and your hand at work in our own lives, that we may trust you for your goodness, that we may know you in your mercy. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Joe, I feel like I'm slightly loud. I can hear myself ringing. Always a problem. Israel said, Exodus 17 and verse 7, they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? It's a question perhaps you've found yourself asking. Or if you haven't yet, I'm sure there'll be times in your life where you find yourself asking, is the Lord among us or not? Is God present? Does he see my need? Maybe a time of particular distance, feeling disconnected from God. Maybe a time of hardship, life is going not quite the way you expected it to go and things are coming your way that you're not quite sure how to handle. Maybe a time of suffering, grief and pain. Or maybe you're waiting for something good and it just doesn't come. Is the Lord among us or not? Does he see? Does he know what it is that I need and what I'm waiting for? Does he care? Will he act? It was the question on Israel's lips, and in one sense, it's a very strange question. If you've been with us for the last little while, you'll know what God has already done for Israel. How much he has given and cared for and seen. Israel cried out to God, he heard their cry, and he redeemed them. Just last week, remember, the waters closed over the last of the Egyptian soldiers, and Israel was finally free. But at the same time, it's not that strange a question either. I think we often forget the kind of the, the history of what's happened in the Bible and we assume into the story what we already know. But just stop and put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites for a moment. Who is this God? They, they've kind of forgotten him. 400 years in Egypt, they'd started worshipping the gods of Egypt. As far as we know, nobody had a personal relationship with the Lord anymore. This, if you like, is almost just like the second date. That, that's, that's all we're up to here so far in the story. And the first date was really weird, right? It involved frogs and blood and darkness and midnight escapades. I mean, it was a weird first date. And so now we're, we're still sussing each other out. Who is this God? Is, is he a territorial God? I mean, he had great power in Egypt. But, but now we're wandering in the wilderness. Does he still have power? Is he, well, actually, is he just the God of plagues? I mean, we saw him do the plagues. Does that mean that all he can ever give us is more plagues? You're hungry. Well, I guess I'll bring some locusts, right? That's about the best I can do for you. What is this God's intentions? Did he want to bring us out of Egypt into the wilderness just to kill us all? He wanted human sacrifice. I mean, who is the Lord? What does he want of us? Is the Lord among us or not? Now, as we go through our story, we're going to see the answer, and no surprises. The answer, of course, is yes. But as we come towards the end of our story, we're going to get to a very important point. It's a confronting one, 
but it's one that we need to understand. It's hard, but at the same time, one of the most comforting things Christianity has to offer. And that is that even the worst things in life, the hardest, the most terrible, come from the hand of God in love for our good. Now we'll come to that. Is the Lord among us? Well, let's get into our passage, into the story here and see what it is that was happening for Israel. Now, throughout our story, there really were some very good reasons for Israel to doubt that God was with them. Some things happened that seemed, well, actually, where is God? Four events that happened. I want to run through the four events quickly. We're going to run through them, learn the story, come back and ask some questions about it. Here's the first of the events, the one that Joe read for us. And that is, they needed water. Right? Here are four reasons they had to doubt. And the first one was nothing to drink. Have a look with me, Exodus 15 and verse 22. Then, okay, so the, the waters have closed over, they've had the big party. Then Moses led Israel on from the Red Sea and they went out to the wilderness of Shur. They journeyed for three days in the wilderness without finding water. They came to Marah, but they couldn't drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. That's why it's called Marah, which if you look at your footnote means bitter. The people grumbled to Moses. What are we going to drink? Is the Lord among us? Now just remember what's happening here for a moment. They've gotten away from Egypt. They've been led into the wilderness and they are literally following God. This enormous pillar of cloud by day and fire by night is leading them. They are following exactly where God takes them and nowhere else. Three days off into the wilderness. I assume they bought provisions out of Egypt. But there's only so much fresh water you can carry. It's really heavy stuff. And when there's a million people with all of your cattle, that's a lot of water you're getting through. Three days in the wilderness, no water. You finally get to the point where you see some water and you're like, yay! And you run up to it and it's just undrinkable. God is leading them. It's not like you can just wander off and be like, oh, well, I guess we'll go find water somewhere else. No, the cloud has stopped here. We've got to stop here. We're not going anywhere else. God, do you see? Do you know? Come and look at the second event, chapter 16. Second reason to doubt, chapter 16, verse 1. The entire Israelite community departed from Elim and went to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month. Okay, so it was three days in the first time. Now we're a month and a half in. Verse 2, the entire Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, where we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted. Instead, you brought us out into this wilderness to make this whole assembly die of hunger. That's a weird complaint, isn't it? If only you'd killed us back there instead of killing us here. What? Because <laughs> at least then, when you killed us, we would have been fed. Now you kill us and we're hungry. We would have been better over there, right? Wandering around the wilderness, slowly, slowly running out of supplies. I mean, what a desperate claim. Just why didn't you just kill us? Is the Lord among us? Can he not see that our food has run out? Can he not see what we need? 
Is he even he? Or again, we have another instance of running out of water. Come over to chapter 17 and verse 1. Chapter 17, verse 1. The entire Israelite community left the wilderness of sin, moving from one place to the next, according to the Lord's command. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So the people complained to Moses, give us water to drink. Again, still, where is God? I mean, it's kind of strange both ways, right? It's strange for God, why has he not started providing yet? Why does it take Israel to come and complain every time? I mean, it's strange for Israel as well, right? The first time God did provide water, we'll see that in a minute, right? They know God can provide, so why are they still complaining? It seems that God is just that little bit distant. And then to cap it all off, the fourth reason to doubt, they're wandering the wilderness, going only where God tells them to go, and at the point where God takes them to, chapter 17 and verse 8, they get attacked and brought into war. At Rephidim, Amalek came and fought against Israel. Now remember who God is. He could wipe out the Amalekites with a thought, with a word, with hail or fire or fleas in their clothes. Or like God, God could, any number of ways God could have just, these never should have come to attack Israel, right? If you are there, God, and you know and you care, why are we fighting? And so, chapter 17 and verse 7, Moses named the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites complained and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now, we rarely run out of water. I don't know many of us who run out of food. And we certainly don't get attacked by Amalekites. <laughs> But maybe you find yourself asking the same question. It seems I have reason to doubt. Is the Lord among us? Now, of course, Israel had all the reason in the world to trust, didn't they? I mean, just think about where they were at the start of this. They'd been rescued by God, miraculously, astonishingly. At every moment when they needed him, God had provided what they, it had been hard. It had been really hard. The slavery got a lot worse before it got better. And yet here they were, free, rich, wealthy, prosperous, a nation. That should have been enough. And yet, through our story, every time they find themselves in need, they complain. And what does God do? He provides exactly what they need, right? Again, run through it very quickly. Chapter 15, verse 25. Moses cried out to the Lord. The Lord showed him a tree. He threw the tree into the water and the water became drinkable. Fantastic. Chapter 16, verse 4. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to rain bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for the day. You... you you think I can't provide food for you because we're in the middle of nowhere? I will literally make it fall out of the sky. 
And it won't be just bread. Come down to verse 11 in chapter 16. The Lord spoke to Moses. I've heard the complaints of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat. And in the morning you will eat bread until you are full. And then you will know I am the Lord your God. So at evening, quail came and covered the camp. In the morning, there was a layer of dew all around the camp. And when the dew evaporated, there were fine flakes on the desert surface, as fine as frost on the ground. And they take it. The Israelites saw it. They asked one another, what is it? They didn't know what it was. Moses told them, it's the bread the Lord has given you to eat. Which, by the way, is just hilarious. Do you know what the word manna means? Literally, it means, what's that? <laughs> so someone went, what's that? And they went, well, I guess that's what we're calling it. What's that? And so the kids are like, what's that? And the friends are like, yeah, what's that? It's like, no, 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 I asked you, what's that? Yeah, what's that? No, 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 but what is that? Yeah, what is that? That's manna, every time you see it, right? What? That's what the word means. And yet, miraculous provision, right? Every day for the next 40 years, no matter where in the desert they wandered, it followed them, this little snow cloud of things, fine flakes that fell from the sky that gave them the sustenance they needed, the quail that would bring them the meat. The water provision, the second time, chapter 17, verse 5, the Lord answered Moses, go ahead of the people, take some of the elders with you, take the staff you struck the Nile with in your hand and go. I'm going to stand there in front of you on the rock of Horeb and when you hit the rock, water will come out of it and the people will drink. Moses did it in the sight of the elders of Israel. Hit me with your stick, God says to Moses. You're going to miss me, you're going to hit the rock and at that exact place, water will flow. War comes and God's with them. Verse 9, Moses said to Joshua, select some men for us, fight against Amalek tomorrow. I will stand on the hilltop with God's staff in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses had told him and fought while Moses, Aaron and Hur went to the top of the hill and while ever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he put his hand down, Amalek prevailed. When Moses' hands grew heavy, they took a stone and put it under him. He sat on it. Then Aaron and her supported his hands, one on either side. So they remained steady until the sun went down and Joshua defeated Amalek and his army with the sword. Every time they faced need, God provided in a way that made it absolutely clear that what was happening was completely supernatural. But what was happening wasn't just they stumbled upon an oasis and there found some. They, they found bitter, undrinkable water and they threw a tree into it for crying out loud and that made it good. They had no food and it fell from, sky, from the sky. Again, no water. It's like, all right, well, I'm going to hit a rock and water's going to... Not normal that, by the way. Hit a rock and water comes out. We're going to fight and in almost a pantomime, of God's power, as long as Moses' hand is in the air, they prevail. There's no guesswork here that God is among them. There's no, well, it was just a coincidence that it just so happened that we won that battle. No, God fought. Is the Lord among us? Yes. Actually, that kind of brings us to the heart of the passage, though. Because God was always among them. See, the heart of this chapter isn't Israel testing God. 
The heart of this chapter was God testing Israel. God had his own purpose. Why is he delaying in providing the good that we need? To teach you to obey, to teach you to trust. See, come back to chapter 15 and verse 25. Chapter 15, verse 25, the Lord made a statue and ordinance for them at Marah. He tested them there. He said, if you will carefully obey the Lord your God, do what is right in his sight, pay attention to his commands and keep all his statutes, I will not inflict any illness on you that I inflicted on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Or down in chapter 16, verse 4, the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. This way, I will test them to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. You see, this whole time that Israel thought they were testing the Lord, is he among us or not? God was very much there testing them. Will you obey me? Will you trust me? The test was a very simple one. Each day you come out in the morning and you will find the flour on the ground that you need to make the bread for today. Don't keep any. You're going to have to trust me for tomorrow. You can't stockpile it. Every single day for the next 40 years... They had to trust that God would provide them the food they needed the next day. Except for the sixth day, because on the sixth day they were supposed to gather twice as much so that on the seventh day they could rest. Each day only gather what you need to. Now what happened? Come down to verse 16, chapter 16, 16. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather as much of it as each person needs to eat. You may take two quarts per individual according to the number of people each of you has in his tent. So the Israelites did this. Some gathered a lot, some gathered a little. When they measured it by quarts, the people who gathered a lot had no surplus. The person who gathered a little had no shortage. Each gathered as much as he needed to eat. I mean, amazing, miraculous, right? Everybody gathered exactly the same amount and they all had exactly the amount that they needed. Moses said to them, no one is to let any of it remain until morning. Okay, there's your command. It's very simple. Eat it. Whatever's left, chuck it out. But they didn't listen to Moses. Some people left part of it until morning and it bred worms and stank. Therefore, Moses was angry with them. Okay, so today you have to trust me for tomorrow. You can't keep the leftovers. They go off immediately. Well, here's the second bit of the test. They gathered every morning, verse 21, each gathered as much as he needed. But when the sun grew hot, it melted, right? It's not, it's not out on the ground anymore. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much food, four quarts apiece. And all the leaders of the community came and reported it to Moses. Moses, we've gathered and we've, left, we've got twice as much. He said to them, this is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a day of complete rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you want to bake, boil what you want to boil, and set aside everything left over to be kept until morning. And you're sitting there thinking, but I did that on Monday and on Tuesday it was rotten. Now you're telling me today to keep some of it for tomorrow. I know what's going to happen to it tomorrow, Moses. 
Verse 24, they set it aside until morning as Moses commanded and it didn't stink or have maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you won't find any in the field. For six days you will gather it, but on the seventh, the Sabbath, there will be none. What did they do? Verse 27, on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they didn't find any. The Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and instructions? Understand that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, the sixth day, he will give you two days worth of bread. Each of you stay where you are. No one is to leave his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Listen to this, the house of Israel named the substance manna. It resembled coriander seed, was white and tasted like wafers made with honey. Yum. Is the Lord among us? Yes. He is testing you. And Israel failed miserably. Today, don't keep any. It's Monday. It's going to rot tomorrow. They kept some. It rotted. Today's Saturday. Get twice as much and keep it for tomorrow. It'll be fine. You don't go out and get more. They wandered on out looking for more. It was such a simple test. Will you obey? Will you trust me today for the bread of tomorrow? I wonder if that's why we had the water twice. Because they just didn't learn. Even something they'd seen God do before. They still grumble and complain. Which makes this such a strange test. Did you notice what's strange about this test? Did Israel pass or fail the test? They failed, right? Miserably. It's a simple test. Just do this. They didn't do it. Okay, well now do this. They didn't do it. But did God still provide for them? Yes. But they failed the test. Now this is a recurring story, by the way. If you read through the rest of the Old Testament, exactly the same thing is going to happen over and over and over and over and over and over again. God commands his people. They disobey him. And yet God is still merciful until the point where it became too much and God had to punish them and we're getting to the exile and all sorts of things till in the end what we needed was a greater salvation now what are we going to learn about this story then this story of testing this uh, this beginning of this new relationship this question of the Lord and his people I want to tell you three things that we learn about God and three things that we can learn about ourselves Here's the first thing to learn about God. Is the Lord among us or not? Yes. Undoubtedly so. Always. We have it from his very own lips. In the Great Commission, Matthew 28, what did the Lord Jesus say? See, I am with you always. It doesn't get any more explicit than that. It doesn't get any more direct than that. Is the Lord with us? Yes. Sovereignly, mercifully, goodly, lovingly, 
Matthew chapter 6, God looks after the birds and the flowers. How much more value are we than them? Know that he is with you. Know that he is for you. Know that he will clothe you and provide for you in majesty and splendor with love and goodness. If you ever find yourself doubting it, just remember to look to the cross. Israel should have looked to the Exodus. When they asked the question, is the Lord among us? They should have looked back and seen that defining moment where God said, by blood I bought you, you are mine. If you ever find yourself doubting it, just remember what Jesus did for you at the cross. By blood he bought you. He is with you. Now here's a second lesson about God. His mercy is greater than our sin. Israel failed. You might well be feeling a lot like Israel right now. You might well resonate with their story. I know what God wants me to do. <clears throat> Thankfully, His mercy is greater than ours. His mercy is more. So much more. I mean, Israel in the end showed the need for a greater salvation, didn't they? And the Lord Jesus has brought that greater salvation. Not only our past dealt with, but the problem of the heart fixed. Israel always had a heart problem. However much God commanded them, the sin inside was still too much. Whereas God in his mercy has dealt with our sin and has poured out his spirit. Such that now from the heart we begin to obey. And yet even when we fail, remember his mercy is greater than our sin. The character of God is constant. He has not changed. He lifts the burden of guilt and raises our eyes towards a glorious future. His mercy is more. And so thirdly, and this is that point of doctrine that we need to hold on to, our Heavenly Father, the one who loves us, tests our faith. Sovereignly, Right? It's not that circumstances get out of control and then he goes, oh, well, that, that went bad. I guess I'd better somehow use it to test him. No, it's in his hand. He was the one who led Israel. He brought them to Marah, to the bitter water. He took them to Rephidim where the Amalekites attacked. It's all in his hand and yet he does it sovereignly in love for our good. If you heard it in our second Bible reading, if you're a quick Bible flicker, come with me to 1 Peter. Otherwise, just listen, I'll read it for you. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. He says, Blessed be the Lord and Father of, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Praise be to God for the wonderful thing he's purchased for us. This eternal, glorious future that awaits. And listen to what God is doing now, verse 5. You are being guarded by God's power. He is keeping us safe for that future through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. We've got a glorious future. God is keeping us safe for then through faith. Actually, right now, 
We're going through times of difficulty so that, verse 7, the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, may result in praise, glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, the testing that God brings into our lives, it's not the sort of test that we often think of, which is the pass-fail test. Right, if I do really well, I'm going to get a distinction. If I do poorly, I'm going to get an F and have to repeat the class. Right? That's just, we think of tests that way. This is the sort of test that strengthens. It's sending metal through fire to burn out impurities and increase what's there. That the faith may be proven genuine and deep and real. How is faith proven genuine? How do you know when somebody really trusts? When they trust. <laughs> when do you have to trust? When you can't do it yourself. When you go doing it tough. When it's hard. When you're suffering. When you can't see the way forward. When you don't have the strength. When otherwise you would fall over. We trust him. And he delivers. And so he receives the glory. Mature, complete, a faith strengthened by trials. As we go through the times of difficulty in our lives, we receive it as the discipline of children. It never seems pleasant at the time. It's always painful. And yet it will bring a harvest of righteousness. Hard times come direct from the hand of God in love for our good. So what are we going to learn about ourselves? Three things quickly. Firstly, hardship and suffering are purposeful. Which if you go outside the doors of the church, if you go beyond the bounds of the Bible, if you go and find any other view of the world than the one that the Lord Jesus Christ gives you, you will not find this anywhere else. Every single other view of the world says that hardship and suffering, they just are. At best, there's something that you're trying to escape, that there's some maybe vague future that you can get away from it if you reincarnate enough times and end up somewhere good or if you do the cycle. Most of the world just says, ah, it just is, that's the world. It's just no comfort. Whereas we know that even the hardest things are coming from our Heavenly Father. And so secondly then, see them as tests to temper our faith to strengthen it, to shape it into something greater and grander that will result in even more glory and praise for our Heavenly Father, which is what we want. I think that's why Peter and James and the writer to the Hebrews can talk about joy in suffering, not because we're masochists, but because we know that through that it will result in even greater praise to the glory of God, which is what we want. I mean, we're hungry for God's glory more than anything else. We want the praise of God's glory. If that means some hardship for us, well, so be it, as we trust Him. And so thirdly then, how will you face the times of trial? Are you going to be like Israel? Grumble, grumble, whinge, whinge, moan, moan. Take us back to Egypt. We had pots of meat back there. Just let me go back to the world. At least I had fun as I died. 
I don't like it. Will you respond as we are called to throughout the New Testament, enduring and rejoicing, obeying God and trusting Him, living to the praise of His glory, knowing that in the Lord Jesus, His mercy is more. Is the Lord among us or not? Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that your character is constant and that despite our failings in the Lord Jesus, you have done what we needed. You've paid for our sin. You've given us the spirit to change our hearts. And so, Father, would we know you truly among us, your power and your presence, even at times when it might feel like we need water and there's none to be found. Teach us to obey and to trust. To know that you, our loving Father, are working all things for the good of those who love you and keep your commandments. Father, we want to see the harvest of righteousness in our own lives that comes from life of faith in the face of hardship. And so, Father, please strengthen each one of us. In Jesus' name. Amen.